we are glad to have you here today. This is Father's Day, and I was thinking of this yesterday. I had to work on some stuff around the house, and I was out in the garage, and I had to make some tools, so I had grinders and welders out, and I made those tools, and then I fixed whatever I was fixing, and then at the end of the day, when, it was, when I was done, I had to go back out and clean the garage, and I did that because my dad literally beat that into me that when you're done, you clean up your mess. And Leon, you're laughing because you know my dad taught me. You put your tools up where they go. And I thought of that as I was picking up my tools because I didn't really want to. But I heard my old dead father say, Kevin, get off your rear end and do what you need to do. And so I got up off my rear end and went up there and I cleaned the tools, wiped the grease out, wiped everything out, got my toolbox in order, put my welder up cleaned off the tool that I made, etc., etc., swept the floor, put the cat litter down on the oil that I spilled, etc., etc. Just because my dad, who's been gone for over 10 years, made me. Not really. He taught me, didn't he? Everything I do as a man was influenced by my father. I know a lot of you guys do the same thing. Now, Don, you're a drag racer, and you learned that from your daddy, didn't you? And you learned that lifestyle. And so many of us, work on things and do things because our daddy's taught us. Some of you daughters learned how to relate to a man by listening to your dad roar around the house and you learn to tolerate a man's mood swings and all those things and so on and so forth. And in this culture we have made the idea that men really aren't that important and we are, not because we're special but because we are part of God's created order. So I just want you to understand and try to look in your life and see how your daddies, maybe your granddaddies have influenced you. And maybe if you are a dad or a granddaddy, how you can be an influence in your, in your family. And take that role of leadership, not to boss people around, but to be a good and godly influence. That's our job, dads. Our job is not to tell people what to do. Our job is to show by example what to do and let the chips fall. So I hope you can do that, and I hope you remember that to let your dads know that you love them and appreciate them if you still can. And uh, like I said, every time I wipe up a tool or use a tool, I think of my dad. And uh, in fact, as I had some kind of personal grief this weekend, it's, it's really absurd how these things go. My dad owned a Chrysler dealership from 46 to 63 after he came back from the war and had all these tools, and nobody wanted them when he died, so I got them all. And one of them broke this week, and it was tight. Well, it broke actually six weeks ago. And it broke, and it couldn't be fixed, couldn't be repaired. It was just wore out. And I could not make myself throw it away because my dad had handled that. So it took me several weeks before I could throw that tool away. It's kind of silly, but there's a lot of emotion attached to things like that for me. And uh, some of you can relate to that, how important daddies can be. One of the other things that we're doing today is recognizing that this is Juneteenth. The first time I've understood what it was, I never heard about it before, and you know what it was, June 19th, 1865, when the last of the slaves in Texas found out that the war was over. And it just took that long, two months after things were over, for that word to get out. And it's a big day, and it's a big deal, and it, it should be recognized. We're going to find in our passage today that racism, this idea that some people aren't as good as we are, or people are different because they're just different and therefore of lesser quality, uh, that's an age-old bugaboo. And that is something that is, seems to be instinctual. It's always evil. It's always wrong. And we just have to struggle against it. So I'm okay with celebrating Juneteenth. I don't understand much about it. 
And I don't even know how to celebrate it, to be honest with you. We don't have any rituals yet, but those will come. So don't begrudge that. You know, we, as a people, had to move on, and that's just part of being a healthy culture, learning that there are things that need to change. So we're going to do that. You can see that we're in 2 Kings today, finishing up a series, what I learned from a diseased man healed. A man named Naaman, a leper. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you this morning for your presence, for your gift of life, of love, of laughter, of fathers and mothers and families and those institutions which nurture us and enable us to grow up strong. Thank you, Father. You have thought of everything, literally. You provided for our needs. And when we submit to your leadership and submit to your teaching and your ways, we do better. We ask for that wisdom. We ask for humility to submit to your teachings. We sometimes get too big for our own britches, thinking we're smarter than you are, trying to do things our own way. And we see in our culture what has happened. We ask for forgiveness and mercy for our sin. We ask for guidance and wisdom. And for a spirit of repentance as a nation that we might turn towards your ways of justice and peace. Father, we thank you for all good things. We recognize that if it's worth having, it is gift from you. Thank you. We thank you for this life that we have in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, the presence of your spirit that comforts and guides and strengthens us. For teachings from your word that enable us to experience your blessings for the promise of life after death father we thank you for these things again you've thought of everything and finally father we ask for your help not only in the struggle against sin and evil but over those things that would divide us both at home and abroad we pray for those who are at war give them peace Give them strength and courage in difficult situations. We pray, Father, for evil to be vanquished. For people to lay down their arms. For people to be able to experience life as you have planned it for us. Be with our soldiers and their families, first responders and their families. Give them comfort and peace. Comfort those families that have lost loved ones in battle. Give them a special sense of your presence. Father, this morning, teach us from your word. Help us to learn from one of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's amazing that if we follow God's will, whatever that is in any situation, we always do better. Sometimes the miraculous can occur. We're going to look in just a little bit at the story of a guy named Naaman. A little bit of history here, a little bit of story. Naaman was 
the equivalent of General Colin Powell in his culture. So think top-notch, top-tier professional soldier. Very powerful man, very intelligent, well-schooled. Um, like I said, the top of his game, well-respected. He had led his armies, the king's armies, into several battles. Just did a good job, was revered by all. Like I said, think Colin Powell. You know, there's just almost nothing negative you can say about the guy. That was Naaman. Perfect life. Wife, kids. Uh, you know, and he wasn't perfect by our standards, by, by the culture standards in which he lived. He was really a, a fine man. Except, here it is, he was a leper. You don't know much about leprosy probably because we don't deal with it much. Leprosy doesn't cause you physical harm. What it does, it numbs your skin. It numbs your nerves. Your flesh begins to wear because you don't know not to do it. If I step on a thorn, it hurts. So I know not to step on that thorn anymore. If I have a rock in my shoe, it hurts. So I know to stop and take the rock out of my shoe. If I break a, a bone, it hurts. So I stop and, and wrap that arm and care for it and so on and so forth. So do you. Lepers do not have that thing called pain. That's what the problem is with leprosy. Your nerves go dead, literally. And so your skin begins to slough off because you damage it and you don't know it. If you have a wound in battle or you cut yourself, you don't know it because you don't feel it. So the wound gets bigger and you don't baby it. You know how you baby a wound. When you have leprosy, you don't do that because you don't know. There was a guy named Paul Brand who figured out leprosy for us about a century ago. In fact, he died just about 15 years ago. And in his prime, he studied leprosy and lived with leper colonies and found out that these were incredibly durable people, lepers. They were strong and intelligent and tough. They just had this disease that made them obviously broken. He said that he had seen men with broken legs in running races, flailing their bones, not even recognizing it because they didn't feel. He said it was a cruel disease. He wrote a book, Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants, talking about the value of pain, about how when you hurt and you baby that wound, that's a gift from God. So anyway, Naaman was a leper, a soldier. His job was to fight and to lead in difficult situations. So as a professional soldier, as a leper who didn't have those sensations of pain, you can imagine what his body looked like. He was struggling, still a strong and powerful man, commanded respect, but obviously broken and wounded. His wife knew the situation, everybody did. In those days, even though he was a powerful man, people stayed away from him because they thought that it was wildly contagious and you can get it. And, and we know a little bit more now, it is contagious, but not like we think sometimes. And so people tended to stay and keep their distance. Imagine living with COVID-19 for the rest of your life and having to wear a mask everywhere you go and people staying their distance. That's what he did. A little bit of history there. At home, his wife loved her husband. He was a good man. She remembered life before leprosy. They had this slave girl, probably a slave girl that Naaman himself had captured from the Hebrew people. In those days, 
kingdoms would attack other kingdoms and they would rob their children and take them. They would kill the young men or if that caused them problems, everybody else was made a slave. They would leave the old people and they'd take the young ones, the girls in particular, and turn them into prostitutes, sometimes wives, and oftentimes servants in the home. One of these young girls, taken from the Hebrew people, was a servant in Naaman's house. She grew up there probably taken as a very young child. She grew up caring for Naaman's wife. The nature of people is to love people that you're with. I think probably this little slave girl in her own way loved Naaman, but she really loved Naaman's wife. She heard and saw. She was smart. She saw the problem with Naaman. And one day, just thinking out loud, she said, I just wish Naaman could see the, the prophet in Palestine, uh, where the Hebrew people were. I just wish she could see them because he could heal him. And the woman goes, what? And I imagine this conversation, you know, the Bible doesn't give us the whole conversation. But she poked around and asked this girl, who are you talking about? What's his name? Where is he at? Are you sure? The little girl was sure he could heal. She got a hold of her husband, told him the story. By this time, Naaman had been to every doctor and charlatan and carpetbagger and everybody else you can imagine probably spent a fortune on medicine. But this time was different. Maybe this time was real. He went to the king and got the king's permission. Remember, he was a good soldier. The king valued Naaman. He was top-notch. He said, okay, I want you to go find this guy. And he provided him with these train loads or wagon loads of goodies and money and gifts so that the prophet would heal him. He made the trip, talked to the king over Israel, and he thought it was a trap because he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know even that Elijah was there and so on and so forth. So finally Elijah heard the word and Elijah sent for him. Hey, bring him over here. So the story is he went to the prophet's house. What he expected, what Naaman expected was a big deal, was a big religious ritual because that's what doctors and shamans and religious people do. You know, they so throw a religious service. But the prophet simply sent his servant out and said, go wash three times, or wash seven times in the river. The river in the Hebrew territory. He was furious. The prophet wouldn't even talk to him. Sent a servant out to talk to him. Dismissed him completely. He threw a hissy. And he got on his horse and rode away. His entourage looked at the servant of the prophet and couldn't talk any sense to him. Later on that day, and again, we don't know the time frames, what happened was the servants caught up with him and they began to talk to him and said, listen, if he'd have asked you to do something hard, you'd have done it in a minute. But just because he wanted you to bathe seven times in the river here, the Jordan you know, you think it's too easy for you. Why don't you give it a shot? What have you got to lose? And that's my modern understanding of the conversation. So he relented because they were right. If the prophet would have said jump off a cliff, he might have jumped off a cliff. Again, leprosy was a cruel disease. So he went down to the Jordan River and washed seven times. And again, I, it would make a great scene in a movie to see a man because a bath in those days for royalty and such was a big deal. It wasn't just get wet, wash off, and then you're done. It was a ritual. So he went through this ritual, a ritual bath, and scrubbed, and people made over him, and all those things, he would come out. And the first time, he was just wet and dried off. 
Maybe the water was burning just a little bit. And yet each time, a little more of that old skin would slough off. Each time he came out of the water, maybe another wound was healed. Each time he came out, maybe he was standing up a little straighter. You know, we can only use our imagination. But finally, by the time he was done with the seventh bath, he was healed. Skin like a baby, the text says. Bonafide miracle. They were thrilled, of course, and Naaman was, of course, thrilled. They went back and wanted to give the prophet a big gift. He wouldn't take it. He said, okay, well, at least let me have some dirt, which is kind of an odd thing, and I'll explain later. And, of course, Elijah said, sure, take some dirt. I don't care. I got a lot of it. So he took two mules worth loads of dirt, packed them on the mules, and went back home. And we don't know much about him. Lived happily ever after, maybe. But that's the story. Pretty dramatic, isn't it? When you think about what leprosy was and what it meant. It meant you were cursed. It meant you were untouchable and unclean. It meant the gods were punishing you. It meant your wife wouldn't touch you. And on and on it went. And your children were afraid to hug you. It was a horrible thing. So I try to imagine if Laman... Naaman, the healed leper, could speak to us. I think he'd say something like this. People who don't follow the one God need to hear about him. They need to know what's going on. They need to know what kind of things God can do. Follow along with, you, with me, if you would, in 2 Kings 5. I'll read the first five verses. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Again, Naaman had probably done everything imaginable, spent a great fortune to be healed, to no avail. The fact that he went to the king and got this, and the king gave him a gift to take to the prophet, probably been done before. I can imagine the conversation again between Naaman and the king. Well, you've done this before. You're setting yourself up for a fall. And Naaman goes, I know, but I, I'm dying here, literally. And the king loved him. So they set up the trip. Strangely enough, Naaman the soldier had heard of the Hebrew God because he'd, part of his people had conquered the Israelites. The little girl was an Israelite girl. But he had never heard about this prophet that could heal. One thing led to another and he was healed like we heard. You need to stop here and learn from this. Don't assume that people know anything about God. 
As a pastor, I've made this mistake many times. Over the years, I've had a lot of different people in a lot of different churches, really fine people. Some of them have gotten saved out of really back, dark backgrounds. Some of them have come to church from other kinds of churches and things like that. There's one woman in particular, I remember, and she was a really nice woman. She was a bodybuilder and very attractive, very intelligent, and her whole family came into church and they got saved, got baptized, etc., etc. And they had come out of another church tradition, doesn't matter what it was. And one day, I preached this at one week, I preached a sermon series, uh, several weeks, on great stories of the Bible, and I preached some of them here. And I preached on King David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. You remember that story. Famous story. I just knew that everybody had heard that story and understood it. So I didn't take much time telling the story. She caught me at the grocery store next week. Kevin, I have never heard that story. That's in the Bible? Are you sure? I said, well, yeah. Just where I showed you, he goes, I have never heard of that before. What a great story. I said, yeah, it's all true. Never assume people know. The fact that you know it doesn't mean anybody else does. The fact that it's part of your common experience doesn't mean everybody else does. Whether they've been to church or not, I don't know. She'd been to church a lot. Slept a lot, evidently, or whatever. I don't know. Never studied the scriptures on her own. Never assume Naaman had this Jewish girl in his home. Maybe she just assumed she knew about the Hebrew God. Or maybe it just never occurred to her to bring it up because she was a slave girl. In those days, well, in all days, slaves got to know their place or they die, literally. So maybe she knew her place. Just keep your mouth shut and do your job because she wanted to stay alive. Naaman would say, listen, if that little girl wouldn't have spoken up, I would never have heard and I would never have been healed. Naaman would say something else here. God can bring a healing into your life. Naaman would say, I never thought this was possible. Again, for us, if you get leprosy today, it's just a series of shots and it's easy to take care of, really. Still prominent in some parts of the world, but that's only because of poor healthcare systems. If you get leprosy today, no great shakes. A few shots and you're done. Fact is, you may not know this, but armadillos are carriers of leprosy. But we don't care because it's no big deal in this culture. You have to remember that God can heal. These stories in Scripture are true. God can heal. Sometimes he uses the miraculous. Sometimes he uses rituals. Sometimes he uses modern medicine. But God heals, folks. He is the author of health and strength. When I hear about new medicines or new techniques or new doctors figuring things out, I don't think, wow, they're really smart. I think gift from God. God enabled them to learn and to study and, and figure things out. It's gift. God heals. Sometimes miraculously. At other times... It just looks like normal doctor stuff. But we have to remember there was a time when normal doctor stuff didn't exist. And God worked to reveal. Naaman would say, don't give up on the God who is God. And he would again repeat this idea that you've got to hear about God in order to ask him to heal you. This brings up your responsibility of sharing the gospel, doesn't it? One of the things about this little girl... And we don't know her name, don't know anything about her, except she knew about the prophet of the one true God, and he could probably heal her. And so, not out of obedience to a command, but probably out of love 
for Naaman's wife, she said, I just wish my master could meet the prophet. Did you see how she phrased that? I just wish my master could meet the prophet. This is just a little girl thinking, I, I just wish this family was happy. Maybe the problem with evangelism in our culture is Christians have reduced it to a task. I must tell people about Jesus. And it never occurs, us, occurs to us to tell people about Jesus because we love them. And so they're notches on our Bible belt or something like that. Or it's something that we say things, religious things to people we don't care about. Or we just don't care about them anyway. Maybe if we were like the little girl, when people we loved needed something that God could give, it would occur to us to bring it up. You see, we can learn from this little girl, can't we? Don't think of sharing your faith as a task, as something to do. Instead, think of the people that you encounter that you love. Is there a way that God can help them? Is there a way that Jesus Christ can make a difference in their lives? If you think about that, then it changes, doesn't it? So if someone's having marriage problems, say someone in your, on your street is having problems and you hear they broke up or, or something like that. Is there anything that the gospel can do to help people in relationship problems? Teachings about grace and forgiveness, things like that. Had a conversation with an individual several months ago. He contacted me and was having problems with his dad. He said, how many times am I supposed to forgive because I'm really angry? And I said, well, the scriptures say 70 times 7. And that doesn't mean count. And at 491, you can stop. That means quit counting. Just forgive. And he said, thanks. I never thought of that. You see, the gospel makes a difference. You have to meet people where they are. Interestingly enough, not everybody is worried about going to hell. You know, I used to think that that was the big issue. Because... Me as a Baptist growing up in that hellfire and brimstone situation, that was my fear, going to hell. Well, you know, not everybody grows up with that. They don't worry about going to hell when they die. It's not a big deal. But they do want their marriage to survive or they do want to relate to their child who is on the wrong path or something like that. So when you think about sharing your faith, think about how does the gospel apply to those people where they are and go from there. It's not a task. Sharing the gospel is an act of love. One of the other things, like I said, is you got to hear. We've got to talk. One of the other things that Naaman might say is that if you want God to work in your life, you have to meet him on his terms. This is the hardest one. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 9 through 14 and 17 and 18. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in a Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. 
And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Drop down to 17. And Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no more offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So, the only thing the prophet said was, go wash in the Jordan River. The Hebrew River. It infuriated him because he wanted the guy to come out and do incantations and wave his hand over and cure the leper. That was his word. He wanted the religious incantation because in his mind, in his culture, when God worked, it was a big splashy deal. And it took incantations and incense and special offerings and all those kinds of things. And that's how he expected God to work. And in fact, he almost didn't let God work because God didn't work like he wanted him to. Do you ever have an idea of what you think God needs to do? You know, I remember one of my professors in college somewhere along the way saying, you know, sometimes we need to understand that our goal of prayer is not to get God to do the things we want, the things we want him to do. The goal of prayer is for you to stumble into what God wants and let him work with you there. I never thought of that. I thought my job was to convince God to do what I wanted. Duh. Missed that part. So... Naaman almost didn't. In fact, as he went off in a rage, so the text says, and the servants later, when he calmed down, servants were slaves, maybe from Israel, we don't know, said, you know, if he'd have said anything else, you'd have done it. Go wash. Now, what you may not have caught is that he was so furious because God wanted him to go wash in the Jordan River, the Hebrew River. It was disgusting in his mind why? Because he was a bigot. The Jewish people were hated because they were just this scroungy little group of people and everybody knew that they were half-breeds and all that business and they had weird religious faiths. And they were just held in low esteem by everybody. They just had that reputation. And he made the assumption that because he didn't like those people that even their land and their river was disgusting. Why couldn't I just go in the river back home? His rivers because they were better. You see how racism and bigotry influences you? Where you even think that land is tainted. So he had to get over that. He had to get over this idea that his land was better than their land and his river is better than their river and do all those things and God says, just, just go bathe seven times. That's all you gotta do in this river. So okay. And he did. And of course you know the story. Naaman would probably tell us, listen, you've got to understand, God is God. God does things his way, not yours. He does things as he sees fit. Look in Isaiah 55 on screen. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Another prophet dealing with the same issue. God does things as he sees fit. He may not do things like you see fit. He may not use people like you want. He may not use the people that you want. See, this whole story, from Naaman's perspective, is a story full of wrong stuff. God used a Hebrew child 
to lead a, a big, powerful man to faith. God healed a big, powerful man that was an absolute pagan. Professional soldiers in those days were just killers, and there was nothing glamorous about it. They were just killers and slave takers. God healed him anyway. We're not supposed to do that. God's only supposed to love good people. Naaman wasn't a good people. And on and on it went. When he was stubborn, his servants, his slaves, talked sense into him. And on and on it went. He couldn't believe it. God does what he wants, how he wants, with whom he wants. Probably. You and I have missed the good things of God because it didn't come in the correct form or in the correct words or with the correct melody or from a guy in the right kind of clothing, right? You know, we resist different types of music. Young people resist old music. Old people resist young music. God's working regardless whether you like it or not. Don't miss something of God because you have an idea of how God works and you restrict how God might work. Understand that if you encounter someone from a different culture that can teach you something, maybe God wants you to learn something like that. Naaman would say obedience is worship is the only thing that's really appropriate when you find the God who is God. Now, in the story it said, okay, I'm going to go back home, and, he wouldn't, and Elisha wouldn't take any gifts. So if you remember, Naaman said, okay, can I have two mules worth of dirt? Kind of an odd request. Every, everybody has dirt, nothing special about Syrian dirt or any other kind of dirt. Dirt's dirt. In ancient cultures, they had this idea that there were literally thousands of gods all over the world, and gods were the god of their turf. So when Naaman went to where Elisha was, his God was the God over that turf, that dirt. So when he said, can I have some of your dirt? He wasn't saying your dirt's special. He was saying, your dirt will bring the presence of your God with me back home. And then he explained, now listen, because it's my job when the king prays to the God of Rimon in the temple of Rimon, I'm with him and it's my job. And if I don't bow with him and go through the motions, he'll kill me. And that's what he was saying. He said, so pray for forgiveness for this God because I have to go through those motions. But he was taking the dirt back because he was going to pray and worship the one true God. See, he understood. This is obviously the God that is God on earth. In fact, as he said that in the text, your God is the one true God. This is the only one that exists. And that was a big deal back in those days because polytheism means that there, that there are thousands of gods and you have many gods, some bigger than others, etc. But monotheism is that there's only one. Not one all-powerful God over other gods. There's only one God that exists. And so he made that shift in faith and philosophy as a result of God working in his life. And so his response was one of worship. What else can I do? I will worship the one true God. I'm going to have to go through some motions here. And so he told the prophet, listen, you've got to give me some grace. And Elisha relented. One of the things that is challenging about this story to me is that, and you know this, that the fact that people are imperfect and do things incorrectly or have wrong belief doesn't mean they aren't people of faith. 
I have met Christians that had some of the goofiest beliefs I've ever heard. You know what? They're still Christian. People that have different ideas about anything than me, they can still be Christian. What determines a Christian? Someone who receives Jesus as Savior, right? Guys, that's it. Now, all those other beliefs are important for correct life and correct faith and all those kinds of things. I'm not downplaying those things. But you do not have to have perfect belief, perfect practice, perfect culture to be saved. So when we say, well, those people aren't saved, obviously, be careful. You don't know. Some of the Hebrew people would look at Naaman and say, well, he's not real faith. If he was a man of real faith, he wouldn't do what he does. He was a man with faith who was flawed. So before we condemn people as Christian or non-Christian, be careful. Maybe Jesus was right. Think of this. Maybe Jesus was right when he said, you deal with you. And don't worry about everybody else. Remember, because the disciples wanted to know who was a Christian, who wasn't a Christian. Because everybody looked the same. He said, that's none of your business. You take care of you. My father taught me stuff like that too. Kevin, just shut up and mind your own business. Maybe this just is what Jesus is saying here. What you need to do is quit worrying about whether everybody else is doing the right thing or not. Just worry about you. It's not your job to discern who is and isn't a person of faith. Naaman was flawed, and he always was flawed. He went through the motions of worship to other gods just so he could stay alive. And God gave him grace for that. And the only thing we know from the story is he was a man of faith in the one true God, flawed as he was. He worshipped in the only way he could. Elisha knew that the one true God wasn't limited by dirt. But there's no evidence that he corrected him on that. Because it wasn't that big a deal, evidently. The big deal was allowing God to work. And then in faith, worshiping him. On screen as a passage of scripture. Read this with me if you would. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. The prophets were very clear. Worship God. Give grace to others. God does whatever he wants. So rejoice that you worship a God who is not as rigid maybe as you are. Rejoice that you worship a God who saves people who are imperfect. Imagine that. And by the way. Aren't you glad that God saves people who are imperfect? Aren't you glad that God gives grace to those people who haven't got it all worked out yet? Aren't you glad that God gives grace and mercy and compassion to people that are people? I know I am. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation, hymn of commitment. A time for you to consider how will you respond to this God who calls you to faith and obedience. Who does things that, well, he doesn't ask you for your, for your permission, does he? He doesn't even ask your approval. God does what God does. And our job is to try to figure out what in the world is going on. And that makes it pretty interesting. Let me encourage you to say yes to the way God is leading you. To join our church. 
perhaps to receive Christ as Savior, maybe to follow him in faith in some way. Would you stand with me as Nate leads us? We'll do just the chorus, so hold my hand. Hold my hand all the way, every hour, every day, from here to the great unknown. Take my hand, let me stand Remember that next Sunday, I think it's in your bulletin again this week, but we will have a special business meeting at the end of the service. So everybody's welcome to stay. The thing with the business meeting, if you're not a member, you can stay, but you can't participate or vote, but you're welcome to stay and listen to the discussion. We're going to be dealing with an issue of a, of a sale of part of our property. Someone has made an offer. We want to talk about that. Would you pray with me, please? Again, Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for working with people who are imperfect. Lord, we are imperfect. We are self-righteous and self-serving. We stumble around. We forget. Sometimes we're apathetic. And, and sometimes we are evil. Forgive us, Father. Cleanse us of our sin. Help us to give grace, the kind of grace that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for this life we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you next week.